Welcome to the Gasps from a Dying Art Form podcast, where I talk about the history and philosophy of tap dance and things that are tap dance adjacent. If you like the show, please become a supporter on Patreon. Half of all profits go to the Mad Rhythms Tap Academy at the Harold Washington Cultural Center in the historic Bronzeville neighborhood of Chicago's South Side. That someone wrote really terrible things Do you take them at their word? Is the word really what they mean? Can't you see? Psychology is killing me Whoa, if we really want to try We almost learn to die It's a gas from a dying art form Gas from a dying art form It's not easy to admit when you're wrong Yet, we all do the wrong thing on a daily basis You know you shouldn't have said that. You shouldn't eat that. I mean, we say, do as I say, not as I do, to children, which only tells them that you are a fallible parental god. And if your word is fallible, well, why believe or obey it? Learning how to fail, to be wrong, and admit that you're wrong with the intention of doing better is part of what philosopher Cornel West ascribes to the concept of paideia. That's my Cornel West impersonation. Good, right? Uh, Paideia, coined by the Greeks to mean the education of the ideal citizen, what Dr. West simply calls, quote-unquote, deep education. For Dr. West, learning to confront and examine one's prejudices and presumptions is akin to learning how to die. When you grow and evolve intellectually and spiritually, that person that you used to be dies for the new you to live. Vanity, egoism, hedonism, material gain. These things make you feel good about living, but they don't prepare you for death. Only through paideia, the examined life, through the figurative death of our ignorant past selves, can we be reborn as a better and wiser self. The ancient Roman philosopher Seneca said, quote, He who learns how to die unlearns slavery. End quote. This takes courage, says Dr. West. The courage to think critically, to love, to have hope and fall in love with the life of the mind. Dr. West challenges us, quote, Do you have the... C-? Okay, I'm not going to do a Dr. West voice. That's going to upset someone, I'm sure. Dr. West challenges us, quote, do you have the courage to learn how to die in order to learn how to live? End quote. I accept Dr. West's challenge. Yes, I am not afraid to confront my presumptions and allow the old me to die. If I'm wrong and admit that I'm wrong and learn from it, well, that's still egg on my face, but at least there is integrity in how I come to that realization. In this episode of the Gasps podcast, I would like to share how I... And many of us in the tap dance community have been wrong about bipolar disorder and how we have in some ways failed to help tap dancers with bipolar, making their lives worse through our own ignorance. On this episode, we are going to learn from past mistakes and hopefully emerge as better, wiser, more deeply educated and loving human beings. So join me as we... Learn how to die. So what is bipolar disorder? 
Well, according to the Mayo Clinic, bipolar disorder, formerly called manic depression, is a mental health condition that causes extreme mood swings that include emotional highs, like mania marked by periods of great excitement or euphoria, delusions, overactivity, and also emotional lows, like depression. These manic episodes can occur rarely or multiple times a year, and bipolar is a lifelong condition that is treatable with medication and psychological counseling. There are multiple types of bipolar disorder. Bipolar 1 disorder is where a person has had at least one manic episode, which is a state of mind characterized by high energy, excitement, and euphoria over a sustained period of time that may be preceded or followed by hypomanic episodes, which are like less severe manic episodes, and or major depressive episodes, and in some cases, a break from reality, i.e. psychosis. Bipolar 2 disorder is when people have at least one major depressive episode and at least one hypomanic episode, but never had a manic episode. There's also cyclothymic disorder, where a person has at least two years or one year in children and teenagers of many periods of hypomania symptoms and periods of depressive symptoms, though less severe than major depression. Other types include bipolar and related disorders induced by drug use or due to a medical condition, such as Cushing's disease, multiple sclerosis, or stroke. During a manic episode, a person with bipolar can exhibit the following symptoms. And now, pay attention. This is important. These are the symptoms. They may experience a break from reality, psychosis, and require hospitalization. They can become abnormally upbeat, jumpy, or wired, have increased activity, energy, or agitation, gain a euphoric and exaggerated sense of well-being and self-confidence, have a decreased need for sleep, can become unusually talkative, have racing thoughts, and are easily distractible, and make poor decisions. For example, going on a buying spree, taking sexual risks, or making reckless investments. I want to be very clear. I am not a psychologist, okay? I am not a psychologist. You could take everything I say with a grain of salt, but well, hear me out. Now, I'm betting most of you aren't a psychologist either, and it would be unfair to blame ourselves for not immediately recognizing these behaviors in others as symptoms of bipolar. I mean, we just think people are being, you know, extra, or maybe being a jerk. It's difficult for the layperson to recognize, but you know where it feels almost impossible to recognize these symptoms in a person? On social media. One of the major problems with social media is that we are often given information devoid of context. We see video clips trimmed down to make it seem like a person said something that they really didn't. For example, here's a clip of current president of the US, Joe Biden, addressing a virtual panel of black civil rights leaders in December 2020. And now this clip was shared widely on social media and even made it to some news-oriented opinion television programs. Check it out. This country is doomed. It is doomed, not just because of African-Americans, but because by 2040, 
This country is going to be minority white European. Hear me? Minority white European. And you guys are going to have to start working more with Hispanics who make up a larger portion of the population than y'all do. Holy half break. Did the president just say that the country is doomed because of African Americans? Well, no. No, he didn't. And here is that part of the conversation with the context intact. But my overarching objective, if we cannot make significant progress on racial equity, this country is doomed. It is doomed, not just because of African-Americans, but because by 2040, this country is going to be minority white European. Hear me? Minority white European. And you guys are going to have to start working more with Hispanics who make up a larger portion of the population than y'all do in terms of raw numbers. We're going to have to be working with a whole group of people that in fact are the single most diverse democracy in American history and anywhere in the world. And we got to figure out how to unify this country. And you've been the leaders of being able to do that. It's clear that in his meandering way, the president is saying the opposite of that, that as racial demographics change, we are doomed if we can't alleviate the tensions of racial strife and must work on coalition building between members of all races. Look, I'm no Biden fan, and his record on uh, racial legislation in the 1990s is abhorrent. But in this instance, no, he did not say that African Americans are the doom of the country. More difficult than interpreting video clips is just understanding what people mean when all you have are their words. Here, I'll, I'll type the same words. Right? They look the same on my computer screen, um, but I'll read them a different way. If a tap dance instructor tells their students, we're going to do the shim sham, a student might reply, the shim sham again, or might reply, the shim sham again. Both appear on my screen as the words shim, sham, again, and have an exclamation point, but they both mean something different depending on the sound of my voice. We might think that we understand what someone writes to us on social media, but without the context of inflection and intonation, it's very easy to misconstrue what they are saying. If a person says hateful things while ranting and raving and running in circles around a room, you might take what they say with a grain of salt and might instead feel sympathy for them as they're obviously going through something. But if the person just types something hateful, you might imagine they are sitting at their computer thinking about what they want to say and then with cold calculation type their message. We excuse people for saying and doing hurtful things if they have a mental disorder or are under a lot of stress or even if they just drink too much booze. But online, you don't know what's going on on the other side of their keyboard and leaving much of what people type open to interpretation. On tap dance social media, we are just as liable to succumb to this lack of context when speaking with other tap dancers. Case in point, how we, and especially I, dealt with a tap dancer 
who I will only call A, who would periodically post comments and replies in comment threads on social media whenever race was brought up, and sometimes when it wasn't, to spout some of the most hateful and seemingly white supremacist trash talk you've ever heard or, uh, or seen. A would say things like how black people are trying to take credit for something that isn't theirs, namely tap dance, that black tap dancers are trying to suppress and erase the history of white tap dancers. A would list numerous inventions created by other ethnicities that he thought black tap dancers are trying to take credit for. Like the piano, you know, jazz music can't be African-American art form because an Italian invented the piano, stuff like that. They called Spike Lee's Bamboozled the most racist movie ever, which, I mean, I suppose it is, but, but not in the way that A means it. In short, A became infamous for downplaying the black American contribution to society and culture, often in posts that had nothing to do with the subject. Sounds like a white supremacist troll, right? A was the scourge of tap dance social media for a couple years, and I was surprised because I had worked with A for many years. Sure, they could be a bit of a goofball, but they weren't like incompetent or unintelligent, and I never heard them say stuff like, like this despite working closely with them for about half a decade. In these comments, A would also tell lies that I knew were not true, appealing to his superior level of expertise, that he is one of the best tap dancers in the world, that he taught some of the greats how to be great. Like the prolific tap dance justice warrior that I am, I went after A, after seeing how hurt people were by their comments. I trolled their social media, matched their ferocity, gave them a taste of their own medicine. And I've talked on gasps before about how you shouldn't punch racists, but trolling them seems like a fitting punishment, right? But it turns out that I was misreading the situation. I received a message from A's wife, and we had about an hour-long conversation regarding A's behavior. Mrs. A informed me that all those times A would go on social media troll rants, he was concurrently experiencing a manic episode, and when people engaged with him, that only made matters worse, and would prolong and inflame his condition. The reason Mrs. A contacted me was more of a plea for mercy than to set the record straight. Mrs. A told me that during a meme flame war between myself and A, A and their family were at their child's sport game. I, I don't remember which sport. Probably soccer and that every time I would reply to them, they would leave the spectator area and go to their car to respond. We sent numerous messages back and forth, and A ended up missing much of his child's game. In this instance, I failed. I failed hard due to my righteous indignation. I had caused A to go into a manic episode and stay in one, taking him away from precious family time, causing him to miss out on the memories of watching his children play. When Mrs. A told me this, I died a little that day, and I vowed to be more careful in the future so as not to repeat this horrendous mistake. Did I learn my lesson? Well, 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 
kind of. Skip ahead a couple years, and I ran across a post from another tap dancer. I'll call them D, making inflammatory statements on social media regarding tap dancers and family structures, and how some tap dancers of color only get support because white people feel bad for them. Racism and social politics, well, that's right in my wheelhouse. So I decided to engage this individual, reposting their comments in the GASPS Facebook group, a private group which I use kind of like a blog. I don't think that many people read the long bodies of text that I write, and I write them more for myself to help me put in order and gain a better understanding about the various things that I learn. What I didn't expect was the wealth of comments, not about my well-researched and <clears throat> eloquently written essays, but about a history of abuse by D towards women and men whom he would randomly message through social media. D was accused of saying vile, garish things and of sending unwanted materials through chats and was called an abuser and a creep. D called me out on their Instagram, lobbing personal attacks and giving me a dose of some of the most reprehensible language I've ever heard regarding people I deeply respect. Late into the evening, D and I switched to a private conversation on the app, and I was fighting the good fight until I noticed something. D was typing these horrible statements in fast, short bursts, getting out five lines of text, all concerning different topics, in the time it took me to type one line of my own. Where had I seen this type of speech-slash-typing pattern before? Why? In my conversations with A. I then switched gears and asked D if they were ever diagnosed with bipolar disorder. The quick, incessant comments paused. After some finagling on my part, yes, D admitted that he had been diagnosed with bipolar. Another failure on my part, because I was again egging on someone during a manic episode. At that moment, I died again. But I did learn something from my previous death. This time, I had an opportunity to do and be better. I asked if we could talk on the telephone the next day, and, to my surprise, D agreed. We spoke for four hours in what proved to be a very enlightening conversation. During the course of our discussion, Dee told me about their experience with bipolar and that they weren't on what they called, quote-unquote, the white man's medication. Staying on topic was hard, and Dee constantly shifted towards non-sequiturs that had nothing to do with what we were talking about, and would sometimes burst into hysterical laughter at what I thought were benign questions. Dee also admitted that after we finished our late-night DM conversation, that they then stayed up for several more hours because they were all wound up. D, like A, also displayed an overinflated sense of superiority, that they were one of the best tap dancers in the world by the time they were 16 or so, and said that sometimes they had trouble sleeping at night and exhibited a sense of paranoia, that they felt like, like everyone in the tap dance community was inherently corrupt, and that some were out to get them. These are all symptoms of untreated bipolar disorder. D would repeatedly say that, yeah, when they would message strangers and admittedly deceive them, 
that they were all during manic episodes, but remained adamant that they take full responsibility for their actions. Dee is a very intelligent person, a great tap dancer, speaks matter-of-factly, and at times with great articulateness. It's hard not to believe them. Herein lies the problem with trying to get a bead on someone on the bipolar spectrum, any mentally affecting spectrum, really, because they don't act like a quote-unquote crazy person. When we think of mental illness, we picture a person in a straitjacket, their head shaking from side to side, hooting and hollering hysterically, drool coming out of their mouth. To have this view is to fall for a stereotype that fosters a prejudice in our minds, an opinion without complete knowledge that leads to improper judgment. If a person can put a coherent sentence together and achieve a level of success in society, then we take what they say at face value. After learning that someone with bipolar, you know, says or does some offensive things, the question that everyone, and I mean everyone, asks next is if the disorder causes the person to embody views that they don't prescribe to, or if the disorder merely removes an inhibition in the person, allowing them to express their true thoughts. The consensus seems to be, it's complicated. Yes, bipolar disorder removes the filter from a person and gives them the chutzpah to say things that they would otherwise not admit. But also, during especially intense episodes of mania, the person can experience psychosis, described by pretty much every source on the subject that I could find as, quote-unquote, a break or loss of contact with reality. That includes hallucinations, delusions, and disordered thinking and speech. Symptoms of psychosis include difficulty telling reality from fantasy, trouble thinking clearly and logically, unusual or overly intense ideas, strange feelings, or a lack of feelings, and suspiciousness and paranoid ideas. When you consider all of that, it's easy to reason that no, and hear me when I say this, no, the person saying or doing those harmful things is in fact not being more of themselves, let alone displaying their true self. When you consider all of that, it's easy to reason that no, and I repeat, no, the person saying or doing the harmful things is in fact not being themselves, let alone displaying their true self. I asked my therapist what, what they thought about this question of is it, is it real or is it manufactured in the mind? And they came to the same conclusion, that is, it is not them being their real self, but instead, in moments where they're feeling, you know, in a manic episode, they're feeling vulnerable, they will just reach for, you know, ideas like a weapon to lash out, right? They'll pick kind of the most offensive thing. They see a post on race, and it triggers them somehow, so they start saying horrible racist things as a way to, like, fight back against an enemy that's not really attacking them, that's not attacking them at all. So what do we do? What can we, the, the lay people, the lay tap dancers do about this? Well, the best thing to do regarding someone going through a manic episode and posting noxious comments online would be to ignore them. 
which is difficult when some of the things they say cut you to the bone. Harder still to dismiss someone who contacts you in a direct message, which feels more personal. And hardest of all, if the offender says something reprehensible to you in person or forbid, do something to you physically, either violent or sexual. What really hurts is that if they are a tap dancer, well, I, I'm, I believe other tap dancers want to give them the benefit of the doubt. We call it a tap dance community after all. How do you tolerate or forgive such an affront? Well, not with ease, that's for sure. And perhaps the experience is so painful that you cannot forgive them at all. If it were my wife or the children I hope to have one day, could I forgive a person who assaults them physically or sexually even if it was a mental condition? What caused the assault? I, I don't know. I honestly don't know. At this moment, I don't think that I could, even though I know that I probably should. It's so painful a scenario that it's hard to even think about. Only a person with super paideia could die that death. And I'm in awe of people who can forgive, uh, say, the person who murdered their child. Because it seems like an impossible thing to do. The best thing I think we can do is become more educated on the subject and apply prevention whenever possible. This includes another nigh-impossible task. Not arguing with people on social media. Hoo boy! This is something I struggle with. It's thanks to these experiences of speaking with people who have or know someone with bipolar that you won't find me poking my nose into online conversations as much as I used to. Because you never know what's really going on on the other end. As difficult as it is to not confront friends, enemies, and faceless strangers who say terrible things, it's better to just ignore and move on. I want to reiterate how difficult this is and how ironic it is for some people to hear me say that. And to those people, well, I'm sorry. Like Paul says in Corinthians, I die daily. Without education towards prevention, we are only going to exacerbate the situation. Perhaps the easiest example of this is the recent media attention given to music producer, fashion mogul, and rapper, Ye, or Kanye West. In 2019, Ye goes on David Letterman's Netflix talk show and describes how he feels when he's experiencing a manic bipolar episode. All things that match with the symptoms I described at the top of this Gasps episode. Ye tells Letterman that he's been off his medication for a number of months, feels pretty good, and, you know, we'll see how it goes. Now in 2024, we know how it went. In 2022, Ye fell into a prolonged manic episode in which he began espousing anti-Jewish remarks on social media and in interviews, each time becoming more and more extreme in his hateful rhetoric. These interviewers egged him on, news and social commentators including, but not limited to, Candace Owens, Piers Morgan, Lex Friedman, Tucker Carlson, Chris Cuomo, Alex Jones, the former president of the United States, Tim Pool, Proud Boys founder Gavin McInnes, DJ Def EFN and Nori, hosts of the Drink Champs podcast, and Manish Jain and Anthony Rapp, hosts of the Clubhouse podcast. In each successive appearance, 
Ye gets more and more hyped up, finally appearing on Alex Jones's InfoWars program dressed like a comic book supervillain while holding a puppet of the Prime Minister of Israel that he made at home. Ye displays all the symptoms, unprompted hysterical laughter, paranoia, rage, unusual and offensive views not rooted in reality, exhibiting pressured speech by rapidly switching through different topics, and even for someone who is undoubtedly one of the most successful and influential artists of this generation, an overinflated sense of superiority. By the time Ye starts doing cartoon voices in front of a net and a bottle of Yoo-Hoo faux chocolate drink, it became apparent to many that Ye was going through a bout of psychosis. Although the signs had been there since he told Letterman what they were three years prior to his most recent outburst. Either these news and social commentators and their staffs were cashing in on the latest spectacle or were so ignorant as to not realize that they were feeding into Ye's mania. I'm inclined to think it's a little bit of both, to tell you the truth. Uh, with the only thing for sure being that they all made things worse. The best thing to do would have been nothing. And the blame extends to Ye's fans, too, who are also too ignorant on the subject of bipolar to realize that Ye's diatribes are a symptom of a manic episode and not some spiritual wisdom gained from his long-dead ancestors, but is instead Ye latching on to hundreds of years of old anti-Jewish propaganda, which I go into detail about on Gasp's episode 11, titled Nope, or When Tap Dancers Share Anti-Semitic Propaganda. I even saw uh, one tap dancer uh, who, after Ye's outburst, would attack other Jewish tap dancers on social media and defend Ye's posting of pictures of swastikas by saying stuff like, well, you know, the swastika has been used by many religions and cultures throughout the history. So maybe that's what he's referencing. Except no, we know what Ye was referencing. And this tap dancer would even post pictures of swastikas on their social media in an attempt to, quote-unquote, educate people. Not only did the attention given to Ye in the media make his condition worse, but it also influenced other people, tap dancers included, who are also susceptible to this propaganda and are ignorant of the symptoms of bipolar. Right? It, it's like a, like a vicious and growing loop of influence. Of course, it's very difficult to ignore one of the most famous people on the planet, but it's not so difficult with people online. One thing that D was adamant about was that that they took full responsibility for their actions. They also put some of the onus on the people that accepted their messages. D said that they could have blocked them at any point or stopped responding or make use of any of the number of features available through social media and personal phone and computer messaging systems. And in a way, they're right. If these people had recognized that a manic bipolar episode was the prompt for D contacting them, or why A was making the comments that they did, then, yeah, the best thing would be to block or ignore them. We fail when we lack the education to recognize the symptoms of bipolar, to avoid the eventual exacerbation of the situation. I hope that this podcast episode will help members of the tap dance community recognize these symptoms, 
and hopefully avoid the next online tap dance discussion catastrophe. To live better and be better tap dancers, we're all going to have to learn to die a lot more often. It gives a whole new spin to the phrase, you know, tap dance is a dying art form. In terms of paideia, I hope that tap dance does become a dying art form, that tap dancers will learn that the art, its practitioners, and the entire community must die daily to be reborn better, stronger, wiser, and embody a critical and deep education. When you think of it that way, it makes me prouder than ever to say, but that's just a gasp from a dying art form. This episode would not have been possible without the insightful conversations I've had over the last few years with Khalid Hill, Brill Barrett, Mrs. A, my wife who is a certified counselor and dance movement therapist, my therapist, Rodney Walker, and of course, D. This episode is also made possible through support from the GASP's Patreon subscribers, Junior Lanian, Lori Williams, Brian K. Williams, also GASP's number one fan, John Nasco, and the support of those who subscribed to the GASP's Patreon in the past. By the airing of this episode, we will have donated $160 to the Mad Rhythms Tap Academy in Bronzeville, Chicago, and as an added bonus, $50 to the Diane Walker Foundation, a new nonprofit for the preservation, restoration, and documentation of tap dance. We haven't raised a lot of money through the podcast, and that's not really the point of it, but we can do something. And I thank you for your support. Check out madrhythms.com and donorbox.org backslash the hyphen Diane with two N's hyphen Walker hyphen foundation for more ways that you can help. And now it's time for the Tap Dance Podcast Roundup. Cowboy reference. Um, you feeling lucky, punk? Wow, shoot, that's policeman Clint Eastwood, not cowboy Clint Eastwood. Have I made that mistake before? Oh, well, let, let's just get on with it. On episode 122 of the Tap Love Tour podcast, host and original tap dance podfather, Travis Knights, interviews Dr. Daniel Black, author of the books The Coming, Perfect Peace, Black on Black, and more. Knights is also joined by special guest Lisa Latouche, and a very, very special guest, her son, Langston. And the trio engage in conversation regarding reclaiming tap dance for black people, a metaphysical origin for tap dance, whether we should shed the remnants of minstrelsy from the art form and brief references to Dr. Black's work. And this is why the Tap Love Tour is the king of tap dance podcasts, because he does what I kind of yell at people for not doing in every episode. Knights reads a book. Like every episode of the Tap Love Tour, he's like, I'm reading this. I can't do a night. I can't really do any impersonations. Every episode, he's like, you know, well, I'm reading this book, or I read this book, and then he looks up the author and talks to them. I have one note, only one note for the episode. Knights, turn your mic up just a little. I like to listen in the shower, and it's hard to hear you, 
when I wash my hair. Alright, the end. Listen to this episode of the Tap Love Tour podcast. Check it out! On episode number 66 of the Lost in the Shuffle podcast, host Hillary Marie talks about some tips and tricks for teaching a hybrid in-person and online tap class. Hillary talks about her technology setup, the benefits for studios, students, and parents, how hybrid classes can help grow a studio, and offers troubleshooting for motivating online students. You can tell this is a, a, a during the pandemic episode, but you know, pandemics uh, go and pandemics come, so this is still good information to know just in case. I mean, that's not easy, and hybrid classes are a different way of teaching. But different can be good. Check out the Lost in the Shuffle podcast and also Hillary's iTap Online for more information. Check it out! On episode number 50 of the Have Tap Shoes Will Travel podcast, host Rick Oslin gives an update on his condition following a fateful bicycle accident. The effects of the medication he was taking, how they can, how it can be kind of good sometimes, and wishes tap dance matriarch Diane Walker a very happy birthday. Osland also talks about taking care of your body and what foods, quote-unquote, aren't worth dying for. And talks about the difference between counting in 4-4 time and 8-4 time. Osland, even after a near-fatal accident, is still his bubbly, effervescent self. So check out this episode of the Have Tap Shoes Will Travel podcast. Check it out! On episode 5 of the Real Talk Tap Talks podcast, presented by Shuffle Life Productions, host Nico Rubio interviews Jason Samuels Smith, Sarah Wright, and Rubio's mom, Karen Rubio. They discuss Rubio's ill-fated appearance on the short-lived Secret Talents of the Stars television show, where Rubio was scheduled to perform but fell ill and had to drop out due to appendicitis. Everyone on the episode reminds him that it's not his fault. But Rubio can't help but beat himself up over missing a good gig. And it's interesting to hear him wrestle with what he knows is true against how he feels about it. Man, it it feels like I covered this one before. Did I? I'm going to have to make a spreadsheet of all the podcast roundup episodes I cover. Because it's getting hard to remember which ones I've done. That means the Gasp podcast... Uh, has has run long enough for me to get confused. Not a bad problem to have. Anyways, give this episode of the R Triple T podcast a listen. Check it out. On season two, episode nine of the Either And podcast, host and big boss of the illustrious Mad Rhythms podcast network, Brill Barrett sits down with another big boss of percussive dance, founding artistic director and choreographer of Chicago's own Trinity Irish Dance Company, Mark Howard. The two discuss their long history of friendship and camaraderie, and how a scheduling snafu with Ben Vereen led to their introduction. These two titans of percussive dance discuss the origins of their respective art forms, upcoming projects, and the importance of diversity in education. Cade Milafalcha to anyone who listens to this episode of the Either And podcast. Check it out! All right, that's all I got for you today. There's definitely nothing else after this. So uh, 
I guess I'll see you later. Uh, bye bye. Ha! I was lying. There is, there's actually is more after that. Boy, I'd like to see the face on the people I tricked, who probably don't care to hear this. Anyways, welcome to the bonus section, where listeners in the know know where to go. I worked with A for several years. They could be braggadocious, but also kind. A superiority complex was there, but they weren't going out of their way to toot their horn or anything. During an overseas gig, I roomed with A and went shopping for a gift for my then-girlfriend. And I picked out some garish piece of jewelry to which A was like, dude, no. And then picked out a smaller charm on a necklace, telling me how smaller can be better, what colors go best with most outfits, and other minutiae that I never even thought about. A loves their family, too. And besides, never to my knowledge, treating his family abusively, is a loving family man. For all these reasons, I was surprised when A would go on their social media tirades. They had not really been an active participant in professional tap dance circles for a few years, and I now see that isolation as perhaps a symptom of their condition. It seems like all the symptoms were present while I spent time around A, but none of us knew any better than to just interpret his personality as, you know, a little bit extra. But I can say that I've had plenty of good times with A, and that they can be very sweet and thoughtful. With D, I don't know if, if even they remember this, but, but I met them over a decade ago at the Los Angeles Tap Festival. We shared a hotel room with like five other people because we broke. And it struck me as kind of odd and kind of inspiring 
how much energy D had. No matter how early we had to wake up or how late we went to bed, D was always hyped to make the scene. If people were somewhere doing something, D seemed to be compelled to be there. I now wonder if this was also a symptom of D's condition, unrecognizable to me at the time. I remember them being a bit conceited, but ultimately, not, not a bad person. However, the people who claim to feel anything from mild anguish to deep hurt through the actions of these individuals is not to be discounted. I haven't interviewed everyone who made a claim against them, but some issues, especially issues of inappropriate and abusive sexual allegations, are quite serious. Are they wrong to feel rage and anger at these vigils, whose actions could be due to, you know, a mental disorder? I, mean, I don't think so. And I'm not sure that me saying any of the things I've said in this podcast will alleviate their pain. In the past, people were left for long periods of time, sometimes for a, a near lifetime in mental institutions, kept away from society, which was extremely unethical. Note, I am not saying that either A or D deserve to be institutionalized. Make that clear. In the 1950s, thanks to advances in uh, anti- Thanks to the advances of antipsychotic medication and a more liberal view of people's rights, the U.S. underwent the process of deinstitutionalization, where people with severe mental conditions were no longer kept in buildings, perhaps against their will, and were treated with the least intrusive means possible. I mean, that sounds good, right? Well, however, it's, it's not like the doctors kept close tabs on the hundreds of thousands of people released over the years. And with no oversight regarding the assurance that former patients would take their medication, a mental health crisis occurred. The effects we are still dealing with today. Now, due to the slackening of available facilities and an over-reliance on medication, there are millions of U.S. Americans who go without treatment. So do we lock people away and make them take their medicine and talk when they don't feel like it? Or do we give them the liberty to live life untreated and misunderstood? I honestly don't know the answer to this difficult question. I suppose the answer lies somewhere in the either end, as Brill Barrett likes to say. And I hope that with mental illness, again, being a major talking point of politicians and medical practitioners in you know the second decade of the new millennium, that some progress can be made on this front. Not a very optimistic bonus section, but sometimes that's how it goes. All right, I won't keep you any longer. Take care of yourselves and please help take care of others. Yes, I love you. And yes, I mean it. Tapman, out. <laughs>